This is why we live in Florida, right? This weather right here, fantastic, perfect, wonderful. If only we could get it every day of the year, but we will relish and enjoy and give thanks to God for this day today as it is. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here at Aletheia Church. Today we will be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and we are going to start off our sermon talking about sandwiches, all right? You guys understand the basic composition of sandwiches, and it's not because you are at the number five ranked university in the country, but it's just because all Americans understand this thing that we love and we know called the sandwich, right? And we understand the basic composition is a piece of bread and a, on top, a piece of bread on the bottom. And whatever is in between is generally the name of that sandwich. Like the standard, peanut butter and jelly, right? One of my personal favorites, the peanut butter banana sandwich. Anybody? Okay, all right. Anybody put mayonnaise on their peanut butter banana sandwich? Yeah, you're not from Alabama, okay? People in Alabama do that, Okay. We also have like the true classic standard ham sandwich, the ham and cheese sandwich, the turkey sandwich, the turkey and cheese sandwich. We can even go with the pastrami on rye, right? We all understand the basic composition of a sandwich. And the reason we're talking about sandwiches is because chapter two of 2 Timothy is one big old fat, juicy gospel of Jesus Christ sandwich. Okay, look at the screen. Where's it at? Is it there? Ah, uh, yes. That is an actual sandwich you can order at Arby's. It is called the Meat Mountain Sandwich. And can't you see why it is appropriately named that? So I really hope someone goes to Arby's after church today, orders the Meat Mountain Sandwich, posts a picture of them eating it in our group meat chat so that everyone can see the before and after of what happens to your intestinal fortitude after you have eaten the meat mountain sandwich, okay? So why do I say that chapter two of 2 Timothy is in fact a gospel of Jesus Christ sandwich? And it's because last week, if you will look at the first seven verses that Kevin went over last week, we see these commands in scripture. We see that we are to be like soldiers, like good soldiers of Jesus Christ, who do not get caught up in civilian affairs. We see that we are commanded to be like athletes who compete according to the rules. And we are commanded to be like hardworking farmers so that we can get a share of the crops. Now, what we see in this, these are all imperative commands from Paul as to how we are to live. But the second section in verses 8, 13, we then move from the imperative to what we call the indicative section of Scripture. And I'm going to explain this to you in case these terms are new to you. This is a great place for you to take notes because this will help you for the rest of your life whenever you read the Bible. You need to understand the composition of Scripture in the framework of the indicative and imperative because it will make the scripture come more alive to you and you will understand it in a much better way, especially when you read the Apostle Paul. He is super famous for writing in the indicative and the imperative. Take, for example, the letter to the church in Ephesus that we call Ephesians. That is a perfect example of the first three chapters of Ephesians or what we call the indicative. It indicates to you all of these wonderful truths about God and all of these wonderful truths about you who are now in Christ. But then the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are now all the imperative commands you are to go and do in light of who you are in Christ and in light of who God is in his totality in the universe and on behalf of what he's done for you. So the sandwich part of this is that the first seven verses last week were the imperative, the middle, the big, fat, juicy gospel of Jesus Christ part that's the indicative is found right here in verses 8 through 13, where we are once again reminded the title of Jesus, and that is the Christ. I think sometimes we just read that, we just go right past it, but you need to understand Christ is a title. It is Messiah. It is anointed. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the ruler of the entire cosmos, the scriptures tell us. Every single thing is under his control. All of this is wrapped up in that title. Paul reminds us that he is risen from the dead. 
not only did he die for our sins, but the true power to reveal who he was and the fact that he could raise himself from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is an incredible hope for each and every one of us. We are told that he is the offspring of David. Paul reminding, indicating to us that God was faithful to every single one of his promises. Even when this was written to the church in the early part of Ephesus, here we have a reminder that for a thousand years from King David's reign to the fulfillment of everything that was said about the Christ, a thousand years, God was completely faithful to bring about the Messiah through the line of David. He then goes on to tell us that even if we are without faith, Jesus will always remain faithful. So that is the indicative section of chapter 2. And then today, we are going to get into just this big list of imperative commands that God has for us. So we're going to close out this sandwich. We're going to put the last piece of bread. And so I hope for the rest of your life, whenever you read 2 Timothy chapter 2, you recognize the structure and you somehow think back to the Arby meat, Arby's Meat Mountain Sandwich for the rest of your life. We're going to walk through this line by line, verse by verse, as fast as I can possibly talk this morning. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So in an effort to not get in trouble with the Apostle Paul in heaven one day, I have reminded you of these things and I will tell them to you today. And the first thing the Apostle Paul wants the church in Ephesus to know, and then what we want you to know this morning is that you are not to quarrel about words because quarreling about words does no one any good. It ruins its hearers. Now, the question before us is, when does a discussion become a quarrel, right? Because we should be open to debating ideas. We should be open to debating topics in Scripture. But at what point does a healthy, robust discussion turn into a quarrel? And though I can't give you all the nuance, I can definitely tell you at the point it is, you can officially label it a quarrel. And that's the moment that it becomes divisive, right? The moment that you start to experience divisiveness or you see divisiveness taking place, you now know that you have entered, you have moved from a discussion and you're definitely in the land of a quarrel. Now, it's one of those things that Christians love to quarrel about words. At least some of us do. How many in here just like to argue for argument's sake? Okay, like I, I knew Kevin's hand would be the first one up, but there have to be more than five of you who like to argue. All right? Who of who you like to argue and have a robust discussion about ideas? Okay, that, that's a little better. About half of you. I mean, I'm on the peacemaker side. You know, I am a make love, not war kind of guy. I'm a peacemaker. I want everything to be at stasis in my life. I don't want too many ups and downs. If you cause problems in my life, I, I just soon as get rid of you, right? Because I want everything... Peaceful. It, it makes for it really makes it hard to be a pastor and to want to be at peace and not at war with people all the time. But anyway, you're going to get the idea. And so I, I'm going to give you a real simple one that may be on your radar, maybe not. But it'll, it'll, if you stay in the church long enough, it'll be on your radar, and it'll be this word predestination, right? This word predestination has caused a lot of quarreling and a lot of divisiveness among Christians throughout the years. Now here's the world. Here, here's the deal. The word predestination is in the Bible. You don't believe me? It's twice in Ephesians chapter 1. It's twice in Romans chapter 8. And the concept is used over and over and over and maybe not the word, right? So, but, but Christians really fight against this word. We don't like this word, but, but the gospel just does not seem to apologize for this word and it uses it repeatedly. So there, around this topic of predestination, we most typically know the discussion is labeled Calvinism and Arminianism, right? Like we don't even use the word predestination anymore. The whole thing has been, you know, gotten down in this theological system we want to call Calvinism and Arminianism. Now, the problem with this is, like if you ever go back and read the original discussion between John Calvin and Jacob Arminius, you will actually see these two guys were not very far apart in their discussion around this idea of predestination. They're actually much closer than you would imagine. The problem is 
once these two guys died, their followers began to quarrel and fight and develop these robust theological systems to which it greatly divides the church in many ways today. This is why if you're ever driving on backcountry roads in the South, you will see Free Will Baptist Church, right? Why? Because they are telling you, we are not Calvinists. We do not like that title at all. And we want everybody who drives by our church to know the most important thing about us is that we are free will people, not John Calvin people, right? So this is one of those things that, and there will be lots of things that come up in your life to where you're going to have to make a decision to where you need to defend the faith. You need to discuss the faith. But with believers, you need to make sure that you aren't quarreling about words unnecessarily to bring about divisiveness in the church. Because if you stay in the church long enough, you will see this happen. And unfortunately, it happens for much worse reasons than words. Uh, Derek Kreiner can attest to this. His grandparents' church split over the color of the roof of the new building they were building one time. And the church split, and the other, the group split off, built a church right next door, and they got the color roof they wanted, and the other group got the group that, the color they wanted, all right? Church people split over the dumbest things, all right? Do not do this. Remember, Ephesians chapter 4, we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Okay, point number two in the second verse we are going to cover this morning. Listen, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Okay, I'm going to deep dive into this one as much as I can. I really wish I could have broken these uh, 13 verses out into about three different sermons, but I just don't have time, so I'm going to get, give you as much as I can right here. But I'm going to hone in on this one right here, all right? This word approved. We're going to talk about the difference between acceptance and approval. And the first illustration I want to use this morning is one you're all going to understand. And I want you to think back to that day you received that acceptance letter, probably now an acceptance email, into the University of Florida. Was that a good day? Was that a great day? On the same day you received that letter, did a lot of people receive the opposite letter with not so good news? Now, if you think back to your own experience of getting accepted into the University of Florida, at some point back in time, someone started to put external pressure on you, most likely one of your family members, about getting a, a good, going to a good college, getting a good job, having a good life. And maybe you started to put this pressure on yourself as well. And you began to work hard in school and to study hard. You began to practice so you could take these standardized tests like the SAT and the ACT. And you began to do the community service hours. And you looked up all the things that you needed to do and had to do to get into this university that was super high on your list and probably was the number one choice on your list. And that day came to where you were accepted into the University of Florida. And so much of the human condition is built around this idea that our achievements earn us acceptance into the things that we want to do. And this is why most people treat religion the way they treat religion, because they believe that they can build their resume up in such a way, they can do enough good things, they can practice long enough, they can study hard enough, and they can be a good person so that when that day comes, and the entrance exam into heaven, and, and they go up to the pearly gates, they hope that they can do good enough that they will receive an acceptance letter from St. Peter, allowing them in to God's eternal dwellings. And this is why the scriptures pushes back against this all the time and says, this is not how it works. God actually says to us in Scripture, much to people's dismay and why people do not like the gospel, it says, because you are all F students. Like you have failed and you have flunked and there is no way that your grades would ever be good enough to get you acceptance into my eternal dwellings. But here's the deal. I've predestined you. I've chosen you in love. I have decided to bring you into my university and educate you in the gospel of Jesus Christ and sanctify you and to send you out in the world so that you can be productive citizens of the kingdom of God. The problem is we too often act like we can 
the thing that we can get ourselves into heaven not recognizing and realizing what it is that God has done for us. But the point of this is that in light of God's acceptance of us, we should work to show ourselves approved. Now, this can get a little bit tricky, right? Especially in, in our modern day context where many people are just taught that, hey, look, God, God really likes you all the time and he really never disapproves of anything that you do. And so when we find ourselves in sin, when we find ourselves having done wrong, people will often tell you, oh, it's okay, God loves you. And it's true that God loves you, but does that make your sin okay? No, it doesn't make your sin okay. And so in this context where Paul says, do what you can, do your best to show yourself approved, we now have to flip the analogy over to not getting in accepted in the University of Florida because you're already accepted into God's kingdom. But the question is, should you work toward God's approval? And yes, the scripture said that we should work toward God's approval. And, and you're going to understand this, but maybe you have a bad experience with this because maybe you grew up with a set of parents who, who, who just really didn't do a, a good job encouraging you or are modeling this for you, right? And, and I'll say, this is something that I've really struggled with out of my own life, but only now that I've been a dad for 15 years and I've got four kids and I have lots of sanctifying practice, which I fail at, many times a day, do, do, do I now grasp this concept? And that when you, when most of you will become parents someday, when you get there, you will understand this, okay? And it's the fact that my love for my children never changes. Their acceptance as my children never changes. However, there are massive degrees of approval and disapproval for me toward them in my life, right? There are times when I have told my children for the eight millionth time, turn off the lights. That after about time seven million, the disapproval rating has gone through the roof because I am not sanctified like my Lord Jesus and I have a hard time with this. And you think it's funny now, but I can't wait till all of you have children and you will know what this is like because it will make you insane. How hard can it be? How can you be a fully functioning adult if you cannot turn off a light switch, okay? And so you lose your mind. There's a high rate of disapproval. Now, if this is when this when the first time we talked about the light switch, you know, we're just working on the sanctifying part of this, that the disapproval level was not. But what you're going to see is that there are things that as they go on, you will have a higher disapproval rating for. Now, just wait until the moment that you have a child and they're like six or seven years old and you give them a direct command to go do something and they look you square in the eye and say, make me. Might you disapprove of that? If you don't, have fun being a parent, all right? So, but on the other hand, like as my children grow up, the expectations upon them grow, right? Because you got to remember, I'm not raising kids. I'm raising adults, okay? They are becoming adults. I'm doing my best so that the person that they marry or the job they take has it as easy as possible, all right? I'm trying to make it easy on everyone else by raising them to be responsible human beings. And so when we enter into a new level or a new phase, my disapproval rating is not high when they mess up, when I see them try and when I see them strive. But we have to understand and again, I wish I could have a whole sermon dedicated to this, but I'm, I'm just trying to clear up the point for you that one, God's love toward you and his acceptance of you never changes. But do not take God's grace for granted that he always approves of your actions and decisions just because you are a child of God. Because we are called to strive for God's approval. And one of the ways here specifically we are told to do this is by rightly handling the truth. Now, some of you would go, Daniel, I plan on being a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a social worker. I am not a theologian. Do not lie to yourself. 
Every single human being as a, is a theologian. You may just be a really bad one. All right, that's the only option. You can be a good theologian or a bad theologian, but we are all theologians because we have theology in our head that we are living out every single day. So we are called to rightly handle the word of truth. So I'm going to give you two quick examples that I hear all the time for people that make me insane. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Because many of you have heard, hey, you're as a Christian, you're not supposed to judge other people. If you believe that, you're a bad theologian. You've been lied to. Matthew 7, 1, 7, 1 through 5 does not tell you you should not judge other people. All right. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's a lot here, right? But what is not here is saying you are not to judge other people. The warning is, be very careful when you judge other people because in the same way that you judge people, you will be judged. And before you go judge someone else, you better dang make sure that your sin is not bigger than theirs. All right? Because if you look in the scripture in 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul actually commands us and tells us as followers of Jesus, we as the collective body of Christ are responsible for judging one another. Now, not in a judgmental tone, but, but by pointing out to people, if you see your brother and sister in sin, you are responsible for pointing out to your brother or your, or your sister that they are, in fact, in sin. And again, you can do that in a non-judgmental way. But do not let someone tell you that the Bible says you are not supposed to judge other people. That's bad theology. Let me give you another one. God is love, right? The, does, does the scripture say that? Yes. Do you know what context the scripture uses when it says that? The crucifixion of Jesus. But when people use the term God is love today, how do they use it? What they're saying is, God accepts me just the way I am and he doesn't expect me to change. God approves of my behavior no matter what I do. We have turned love into this sentimental thing. I, I think the, the worst thing about the English language, for the over 100,000 root words that we have, we only have this one word for love for a bajillion different things, right? Where Greek, Greek itself had significantly less root words, and they actually had four different words for the word love. And we used the same thing. You know, it, it's amazing that I can say to my wife, after 18 years of putting up with me in our marriage, that when I say I love her, I really do for putting up with me for 18 years in my marriage, that the only other word I have for loving an Oreo double stuffed cookie is the exact same, right? Because they are just not the same. Now, bacon cheeseburger, we're getting closer. But, you know, it's one of those things like you just can't, it amazes me. We're so, we so limit this one word, this so important word. And so people will use this God is love word and phrase in, in like just trying to say like God accepts me. And, and though, but you got to understand, man, if, if God gets involved in your life, he is going to change you. He wants to change you from the inside out. And so be very careful because in the context of God is love, what we see and what we know and we understand is that, yes, God loved the world in this way that he, he gave his only son, right? Jesus becomes the propitiation for our sins, as it says in 1 John 4, so that, which basically means to become pleasing. We become pleasing in God's eyes because Jesus has made us permanently Please, he's permanently satisfied the debt of our sin to where we have been absolutely freely and totally forgiven. 
God will not count our sins against us and disqualify us from heaven. But Jesus does say in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, pay attention, you will give an account to him for every single word that you have uttered on this earth. There will be a tape that plays back every single word you say. You will give an account face to face to Jesus. God is love. He loves you in the most incredible way beyond anything you can imagine. And in heaven, He is going to pour out His immeasurable riches on us who are the children of God forever and ever and ever, and it will never get boring or old or stale. But you need to know when God's love comes into your life, it wrecks you wholly and totally and completely, and it wants to change you from the inside out. It is not a soft, sentimental love. It is a love that was so serious and so devout that God was willing to send His own Son to die upon the cross, to die in your place and to die in my place. And the sacrifice was good enough and great enough that any, every and all sins in humanity can be forgiven and will be forgiven to all those who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the incredible gift given to us as the children of God. Make sure you strive to rightly handle the word of truth. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Um, then they are upsetting the faith of some. All right, I'm going to address this. This issue has become more and more prominent within our church, also uh, among the campus of, of the University of Florida. So Kevin and I talked about this, and we found that it was a, a good place to in, inject this into the message here today. Now, the thing going on here, these two guys were basically saying the resurrection has already happened in a physical sense. The only thing left was a spiritual resurrection, and it was ruining people's faith, okay? So we know affecting at least 10 of you, and if, we, if we're already aware of at least 10 of you being affected by this, we sure there are more, and you, there will be opportunities to cut this off at the pass, but there is at least one ministry that we're aware of on campus and two churches locally who are doing their darndest to convince people, especially Christians, that baptism is necessary for salvation. That baptism in their church is necessary for salvation. They are very active and they are very aggressive. Now, they have all of these proof texts and these verses that they want to use on you. And you just need to know it is a lie. It is false. They, they, are, they are teaching something that is absolutely 100% not true. Because if you have to be baptized in order to experience the salvation, you have at that moment added a work to salvation that is necessary beyond belief. For the Bible says it is your belief, it is your faith alone in Christ alone that saves you. But yet, this is wrecking the faith of believers on the campus. It is, it is affecting the faith of believers in and around Aletheia Church. And I, I also want to say that, and, and, this is the, you know, and this is the problem with groups like this, is they, they, they make one issue really prominent. And the problem is, by the time you get in there, you realize there's a whole big other list of qualifications they, that they want to put, put in your life. Now, I'm intentionally not naming these, but yet many of you know exactly who I'm talking about. And I'm about to say something that is um, maybe controversial to you, but I'm going to stand on it. Kevin and I talked about this. We agreed on this. Don't blame him. Blame me. I'll take the brunt um, of this if this really bothers you and you're aware of them. We have officially labeled these groups a cult. Okay, I don't use that word lightly um, because there, there, there's one thing to be wrong about a doctrine of teaching, but l let me give you kind of the three basic qualifications for a cult. Okay, 
number one, it should be up here on the screen, the, the, the first basic qualification for a cult is they teach that something else besides faith alone is necessary for salvation, okay? So if you come a group that is wanting to add anything beyond salvation, beyond faith in Jesus Christ, that you will know is a cult. Now, it could be that they deny, like, you know, for the, the Jehovah's Witnesses deny that Jesus is God. He was just a perfect man. The Mormons, same thing. Those are in cult. But basically, so they have different ways you can get saved. But they're all works-based, okay? Now, the second point that we would say to you, if we're going, ah, okay, is this, is this just bad teaching? Or are we now moving into a cult? The, the, the thing that you now move into is how controlling of your life do they want to be? And we know about these groups. They are incredibly controlling. They want to control who you talk to, who you interact with, how you interact with them. And so what they do is, they have this list of what is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And until you are a true disciple and completely sold out under their judgment, you are not ready to be baptized. So they get a whole list of things you got to do. Once you do this whole list of works, then you get baptized under their, under their church name. And then they declare that you have been officially saved and will one day go into heaven, okay? So if you go into a group and you find them really controlling over your life, you're like, uh-oh, yep, uh, I, my, the red flag's been going off. I think we're getting really close to cult territory here. The third thing that is the absolute clincher is if you try to leave, they threaten you, okay? And this ministry on campus and these two churches, we know from people within our own church what they get, they do. The, they don't practice one-on-one -on -one discipleship. They practice one-over-one -one discipleship, which means this person is over you. They can tell you what to do, and they what they tell you to do is you need to write down and confess all your sins, and you need to keep a journal of all your sins and hand it in. Guess what happens when you try to leave that church? They threaten you by telling you they are going to expose all of your sins to the other members of the congregation. So it is for those three reasons. And that, that we would say to you that if you run across these people on campus or you have friends who are involved in ministries where they are telling them you must be baptized to get saved, this, that is not the single and sole issue. It is moving into areas of um, very tight control that will result in threats of exposure if you leave. And we want you to be warned of this because we are called. And again, you may be saying, Daniel, you're not supposed to judge other people. Absolutely. We are to judge those in this situation because we are trying to protect you and we want to protect people from getting sucked into these situations that it is very difficult and very hard to get out of. So we do not say this lightly, but we officially believe that you should avoid them at all costs and if you are having any problems or issues with them, or if you have friends who are caught up in these ministries, let us know. We will do our best to have a conversation with people to explain our position because we want you to understand the free, the, the freedom that is in Christ. This is why Paul talks about freedom in Jesus Christ. If you are being controlled, you are not free. Paul gives this warning in Scripture to avoid these people. We would give you this warning to avoid these people because they are upsetting the faith of some. And he says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So I, what I would say to you is, and I understand this is really hard. Sometimes it's really hard to understand who is and who isn't. But just because someone uses the name Jesus, just because someone uses the name church, just because someone uses the terms that we do, it does not mean that they are truly of the fold of God. And we must be discerning because a lot of times we think discernment is just being able to tell right from wrong. I think a better definition of discerning is being able to tell right from almost right. Like it's so close. But is it really true and is it really right? Because many things sound familiar. They sound similar because language gets crossed and used together. But it does not mean that everyone who uses the name of Jesus Christ is indeed a follower of Jesus Christ. And God will reveal that in the end times.
So we have done our best um, to present this to you, at least I have. And if you have any questions about this, I would love to discuss this with you. Kevin will be glad to discuss this with you. Theo will be glad to discuss this with you um, because we want to help you as much as possible in this, um, in this conversation. Now, what you're about to see happen in verses 20 and 21 is kind of the sandwich within a sandwich. Paul's going to switch real quick back over to the indicative before we finish it off with the imperative. So kind of think about a club sandwich, right? Or even like a Big Mac, right? You get the piece of bread, you get the meat and the cheese and stuff, then you get a piece of bread in the middle, then more meat and cheese, and then a piece of bread on top. So you just got a multi-layered sandwich here that Paul is really laying out for us. And he says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so now Paul is kind of getting answering the question, what is, what is the point of all this that I'm saying? And I want you to notice in verse 21, this big therefore, okay? Now, the, the image that Paul here is using would have been very familiar to those who had come out of Judaism because he's talking about the temple context where there were certain dishes and utensils that were deemed honorable and you, that could be used in and around the temple. And those things would have been holy things, but other things would have been unclean things that were not to be used in the temple. And so what Paul is saying to the believers in Ephesus and communicating to us today is that there are honorable dishes, there are dishonorable dishes. But here's the deal. No matter what you're stayed in as you sit here today, if you cleanse yourself from the dishonorable things in your life as a follower of Jesus, you can become a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So some of you may be sitting here under the weight of your own sin today, not feeling as if you can become honorable and useful to God. And the beautiful thing about God and His redemptive process in our life and His sanctifying process in our life is that He can take the dirtiest, messiest, most horrible situations that many times we have created of our own volitional free will, and He can clean them up and make honorable, useful things out of them. Don't ever for the rest of your life think that you have sinned in such a way that God cannot use you for good and honorable purposes. But sometimes those messes are a lot harder to clean up. You know, getting a little piece of um, dried food all, all off the plate may not be very difficult. But yet, if you let some food harden in the pan for three weeks, as I know some of you students do, as you cook and you just leave it in there and it hardens up for a while, it's much harder to get off. You can still clean it. It can still become useful again, but it takes a little extra time. But, but you need to understand that that God does reward us for our obedience. I mean, we see this in, in the covenant of the Old Testament, right? We see in Deuteronomy 28, God said, look, here are all the blessings for obedience, and here are the curses for disobedience. And he says, look, I want you to obey. I want to pour out my blessing upon you and give all these things to you. But I want you to know if you don't, here will be the consequences in your life. But we, we also see this carry over to the New Testament, right? We see Jesus with a parable of the talents. He gives one guy five talents. That guy doubles it. And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's some more. But yet the last guy took the talents that he had and all he did was bury it in the ground. And Jesus called him a wicked servant because he did not do anything with what God had given him. And so we need to realize that when we are responsible as followers of Jesus, God blesses us with more responsibility for the furthering of his kingdom. He expands our influence. But when we don't, we miss out on opportunities for being honorable in God's sight. And so my encouragement to you is, is there anything in your life that is currently there that is dishonorable, that you need to get rid of? that you need to be to, to say no to and to walk away from so that you can be more useful 
to the master's purposes. Because this is what I can tell you. God wants to use you. And do not ever get caught up in this idea of a divide between the sacred and the secular. You, you, you just need to know whatever your chosen career path is, as long as it is not like directly a sin, right? Like if you choose to be the owner of a strip club, sorry, that just doesn't work, right? You're not going to find that in the honorable section, no matter how hard you work. But yet, if you are a doctor, if you are a lawyer, if you, if you are a social worker, if you decide to be a stay-at-home mom, any and all work can be redeemed and honorable before the Lord. I know you're idealistic. I know you want to change the world. But let me just say to you, in God's economy of moral proximity, your first and foremost responsibility is to have governing control of yourself. The second place you have responsibility is governing control over your family. You are more responsible to your spouse and to your children than you will ever be to someone who lives 5,000 miles away. You are more responsible to the people that live around you and in your church community than you are to someone who resides in the nation's capital. You, part of the problem that we have is that we feel like our life is not big and grand and wonderful and fantastic if we don't have this massive influence over this great number of people or we have these big fancy jobs with big sounding names. But I want to tell you that it is okay to be plain Jane Christian. It is okay to get up for the next 50 years of your life and to love your spouse well, to love your children well, and to go to work with the attitude of Jesus every single day, influencing those in your organic spheres of influence. If you do that every day for the rest of your life, God will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Do not sacrifice your family for the sake of your work or for the sake of money. The moral proximity of Scripture says you are first and foremost responsible to those that God has put closest around you. And whatever that job is can be honorable and holy before the Lord Himself. Here we move back to this final section, this final section of imperative commands where Paul says to the church, to Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. All right, I am just going to make the assumption that some of you are giving in to youthful passions. I think pretty safe in our demographic today, there are some of you who are regretting your choices from last night. You're regretting your choices from last week, from the last month, from the last semester, and there is conviction in your soul. These are the things I need to stop doing. If you know this to be true, pay attention to the word Paul uses. Flee. Not, oh, I'm going to try and manage it. I think I can handle it this time. Paul says, run. Get as far away from, you, from it as possible. Again, some of you will have to take extreme measures to run from your youthful passions. But notice, it's not just run from your passion and just keep running. Because you're not just running from something. You're supposed to be running toward something. And what do you run toward? You run toward righteousness. Why do you know what righteousness is? You've got right, to rightly handle the truth of God. How do you know what faith is? How do you know what love is? You need to be running toward being self-sacrificing toward other people. You need to pursue peace. Right now, who are, who are you at quarrel with? What family members, what, fam, what friends are you separated from that you need to pursue peace? But notice how he does this. He says, you don't do it alone. Many of you are trying to be lone-rated your Christians. I got it. I'll handle it. I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps. 
That is not how the Christian life was ever made to work. If you want to experience the true power of the Holy Spirit in your life, it must be done in community because he says you're to do this along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A lot of you, there's just friends you need to drop. There's people you need to walk away from and never have anything else to do with again because they are dragging you down into sin. And don't be surprised by this. I mean, King Solomon, the wisest guy who ever lived in one of his Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Like, don't be surprised if you keep finding yourself in the same bad, sticky situation when you're hanging around people who continually drag you into this situation. Walk away from them and walk with those who are calling on God from a pure heart. And I know that can be hard, and I know that can be painful. But the question is, who are you honoring with your life? The one who bought you with his blood, or the friends who keep leading you into sin, who keep leading you away from righteousness? You need to get out of these codependent, enabling relationships, and you need to walk with people who are healthy, right? You need to walk with people who are pursuing God as much as you or more than you so they can be an incredible influence upon your life. I promise you, your life will be all the better for it. And so from here, Paul makes this final turn away from the individuals that he's speaking to because now he wants to, them to consider those who are in their organic spheres of life that many times they are trying to have conversations with about the gospel. And as you guys know here, we're, we're in the midst of our one campaign. I hope it is something we do for all of our days here at Aletheia Church. I think it's been one of the best things we've ever done. I think it's one of the things that we should always continue to do to stress and to emphasize to each and every person, who do you believe is the one person in and around your life that God has specifically put there that, that, that you want to see come to know the saving power of Jesus Christ. I mean, and ever since we started this, like it's been really cool. Like in my gospel community alone, which I don't even lead, Charlotte and Spencer lead the whole thing. We've seen three people get baptized in recent months and two more who are now wanting to be baptized. And these were people's ones. And, and let me tell you, and I'm so glad he's not here, but I kind of wish he's would, but I'm going to talk about Gabe, all right? Many of you know Gabe at this point. You saw Gabe get baptized I mean, if you if you could have been in our gospel community group a year ago when Charlotte, who works in the same division that he does and his lab partner and all that stuff, um, no, they're not lab partners, but they work in the same place. She's like, you know, my, my one is this guy, Gabe, and he's an atheist. And I mean, and he asked me all these questions. We have all these discussions, but I'm putting my one, but there's no way this guy's ever coming to Jesus. I mean, like no way, no how, not going to happen. And so we start praying, you know, and they just keep having, he's just pestering her with questions, hounding her with questions like the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, Jesus being the only way. What about same-sex marriage? What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And many times she could answer his questions. And many times she couldn't answer his questions. And she'd come into our group. Hey, he said this. What do I say? All right, here's some more Reese's. You go, you go figure it out. And then finally one day she's like, you know, we have all these conversations. You just want to read the Bible? And much to her shock and dismay, he said, yes. Because here's what he said. If I'm not going to believe in it, I at least need to know why I don't believe in it. And right then we knew, sucker. All right, all right. Because right there, that is all Jesus. Like, oh, this is over. It's all over but the crime. We just need some time, right? And so over time, over time, you know, this thing begins, begins to happen, you know, and one of these things, and it's like, it was funny. I was, he's, he comes to church one day and it was his first day. And somebody else was new to our group. And he's like, oh, I'm Gabe. And they're like, oh, you're the Gabe. And it's like, oh, no, you shouldn't say that to somebody. So just in the future, if you're praying for somebody, don't say that. Oh, you're the, no, okay, don't do that. Um, but, um, but yeah, he's hung in there. And man, it's just been awesome. And, you know, now we, we've baptized him. We've seen the evidence of salvation in his life. And now he's moved to hounding her with all of his questions, to hounding me with all of his questions about what it means to be a Christian man. What does it get? What does it mean to be a Christian husband? What does it mean to be a Christian father? I need somebody to teach me and tell me all these things because I am like 
uh, I was, I've raised far away from this as possible, so I need somebody to teach me, right? And so and this is the part of being, you know, honorable use of just like you, you will find yourself in places and God is just going to allow you to be a part of these amazing stories because the, the verses that Paul used here, this is how he concludes it when he says, look, the Lord, and this is why he said all these things in this passage, the Lord's servant, us, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, which means you had to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. You must patiently endure evil. You must correct your opponents with gentleness. And you know what? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. You might just find out they were predestined after all. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That is why all of chapter 2, it is for your benefit, it is for your good, it is for God's glory, it is for the extension of his kingdom, but it is also for the opponents of God who do not yet know that God is in the process of drawing them to himself through people just like you and me, specifically through our daily interactions with people. And so as I close this out and the band comes back up, I just want you to think over what Pastor Kevin said last week about the soldier and the athlete and the farmer, about the wonderful revelation of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done on our behalf, and the commands that we've seen today. And is there sin in your life you need to run from? Is there sin that is entangling you as we see in Hebrews chapter 11 or 12? I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Paul says that, you know, we're supposed to leave the sin that so easily entangles us. Aren't you tired of being tangled? Aren't you tired of this stuff bogging you down and binding you down and finding yourself in the same thing over and over and over? You can be set free from sin. You need to acknowledge that sin, confess that sin, and repent of that sin. And repentance was like fleeing your youthful passions. But don't just think about yourself in this time of prayer and, and, and meditation and contemplation. Think about your one. Think about the people. If you don't have a one yet, write down your one. Because we have no idea what God is going to do in the hearts and lives of people. I pray that this sermon encouraged you, exhorted you, and challenged you to be vessels who strive and desire to be those who are for honorable use.